Yeah. Um, we'll take two. Uh, our scripture again today is um, from 1 Samuel 17, 19 to 54, uh, the story of David and Goliath. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up, and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines and facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, what, Why have you come down here? And with, those, with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David. Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul went for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been fighting men from since his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David with his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking round because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. When he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his bag of his shepherd's bag, in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, with his slain in his hand and approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you should come after me with sticks? And the Philistines cursed David by his god. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. 
Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not saved by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the, for the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell down face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a slain and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sha'arim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put the Philistine's weapons in his own tent. Oops. Pulled out the wrong sermon. Um, <laughs> one movie I watched a lot as a kid was The Wizard of Oz. It's funny, I was always really scared whenever I watched it. And I've been watching it since before I can remember. All the scary uh, witches and the flying monkeys and the dark forests, and all the actors really played it up too. A while ago, I remember I couldn't fall asleep and I was just strolling through Wikipedia and reading random articles, which is like the best thing to do when you can't fall asleep. And I got to re-familiarize myself with the plot of the movie. What I realized was that there's all kinds of really bad guys in the movie, and they seem impossible to kill. But they were defeated almost completely by accident. Dorothy gets to Oz, and the very first thing is she happens to land on the Wicked Witch of the East. And so all the munchkins sing her a song thanking her and praising her amazing strength in slaying the Wicked Witch. witch. And then, of course, there's the witch, uh, Wizard of Oz, who recognizes her amazing ability to slay witches. So he tells her to kill the Wicked Witch of the West, because that's something that she can do, apparently. Um, then because no one in the movie is competent at all, and they, none of them know what they're supposed to be doing, they all get captured by the Wicked Witch of the West. So the witch starts to burn the scarecrow. And of course, Dorothy happens to find a bucket of water and splashes it on the scarecrow to keep him from burning up. By some dumb luck, it gets on the witch, and she just melts. Apparently, the weakness of the Wicked Witch of the West was water. Who knew? Then all of the soldiers hailed her as their queen and bowed before the great and powerful Dorothy, the slayer of the two most horrible witches. And finally, she gets back to the Wizard of Oz, who still looks super scary. And then Toto pulls back the curtain, and wow, the Wizard of Oz was just a random old man. He yells, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, and I'm a rather good man, just a terrible wizard. Dorothy is a hero, but completely accidentally. She never does anything on purpose. She defeats her enemies by sheer dumb luck. None of the enemies were all that hard to defeat. They call a stereo enemy that is easy to beat. They call that a, a paper tiger. All Dorothy's enemies are paper tigers. They look scary, but the moment that they're challenged, they collapse. You poke a paper tiger and it falls apart. 
Now, normally when we read the story of David and Goliath, we focus on how brave David is. And in part, that's true. David really did have to trust God a whole lot. But I think that the narrator might actually be going out of his way to avoid that interpretation. Instead, both David and the narrator do all they can to say that if Goliath fails, it will be entirely God's doing. David says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. When Goliath dies, it will be so that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. God doesn't save through sword and spear. He doesn't save through human weapons. No, the battle is the Lord's. When you read the biblical description, the story is only like 20% about David in the actual fight. If the story were about how great David was, you might expect some explanation about how David gathered up some courage or what he said to himself as he was throwing the stone or something like that. Maybe it would be this epic struggle between good and evil. Instead, you see two whole verses devoted to the entire fight between David and Goliath. They gave tons of speeches for about 20 verses, then they approached each other, and David killed him. The end. For the narrator, David isn't so much a great warrior, but someone like Dorothy. Dorothy slayed the two great witches and exposed the Wizard of Oz. But when you look back at exactly what she did, it took her no skill and barely any effort to kill the witches and to kill the villains. David is the exact same. Goliath is blustering and bragging and everyone is scared. But for David, all he has to do is poke the evil villain and he crumbles. Goliath looks really scary, but ultimately Goliath too turns out to be a paper tiger. Everything that was scary about him is nothing but appearances. All it takes is a swift stone to the forehead and he goes down. It's so easy, it's almost like an accident. David killing Goliath looks almost like Dorothy killing the witch by landing on her or accidentally splashing some water on her. In fact, what's really interesting is that even David doesn't seem to know quite how much like, David, like Dorothy he is in this story. It's clear he has no idea how easy the fight would actually be. Notice how in verse 40, David picks out five smooth stones. Now, why does he pick out five? In the end, doesn't he know that he only needs one? The answer is no, probably not. He probably took five stones because he thought it would be a longer battle. Maybe the first stone will miss him, and then the second one glances off his leg. Who knows? He's, gonna be, he's got to be prepared in case he misses. What that shows is that even David thought it would be a longer battle than, he thought, than it ended up being. Looking back at verses 34 and 40, 35, he's talking about how he wrestled lions and bears. Then look at those two verses about the actual fight. Is it even close to wrestling a lion or a bear? So it seems like David's plan was to daze and weaken Goliath by hitting him with a few stones and then wrestle him until he finally wins. It seems like David is confident that God would make him win, but it also seems like he's going to have to do some wrestling on his own. It's going to be a tough fight. Maybe he gets some injuries of his own. But his prediction ends up being wrong in the most unpredictable way. He didn't need to wrestle him like he did the lions and the bears. He didn't need all five of the stones. It just took one shot to the face. Just like with Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, it turns out that defeating Goliath was way easier than even David thought it would be. David had this big speech about how God was going to defeat Goliath, but he underestimated just how easy God would make it for him. Now, this kind of idea is pretty much stated outright in the song in 1 Samuel 2. It says that strong people in the world should no more talk so very proudly, and arrogance should not come from their mouths like, like Goliath's arrogance. 
This God is a God of knowledge who weighs the actions of humans. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. God makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He kills and he brings life. He raises the poor from the dust and he seats them in a place of honor. In other words, the big, strong, bad guys that you might be tempted to be afraid of are in reality just pawns for God. You have no idea that they're actually doing God's bidding. They bluster and they swagger and they threaten, but believe it or not, they are completely helpless in front of a puny person that is faithful to God. God guards those who are faithful to him and he smashes his enemies to pieces. Because in the end, it is not by might that men prevail. This song in chapter 2 foreshadows and predicts everything that happens in the book of Samuel. And it says exactly what happens in this chapter. Here you have a guy named Goliath who blusters and swaggers and threatens. Goliath is rich and mighty and honored. And he claims that he has the power to kill David and scatter him to the birds. Meanwhile, David says that it is God who brings life and brings death. Goliath is just a pawn for God to do his will. Goliath might be a giant, but all Goliath's strength does is to make it clear, more and more clear how strong God is. Look at our picture in the bulletin, and you'll notice that the power of God is only made clearer by the fact that David looks like a pipsqueak and Goliath looks invincible. David says that even if he is small, it is not by might that men prevail. Basically, if this was our story, if the son in 1 Samuel 2 was a story, it would be the story of David and Goliath. In other words, David knows full well that he is Dorothy and that he will fumble and bumble his way to victory. But it won't be because of luck or happenstance, because, but through God's own power. And by comparison to God, Goliath is a paper tiger. What David did here is actually completely normal in the Bible. As we're talking about in the youth Bible study, it was actually exactly what Israel was always supposed to do from the time that God made a covenant with Abraham. God said to him, through you all the nations of the world would be blessed. And it became really, really clear early on that the whole world wouldn't be blessed through Abraham because he was a genius or because he was really talented. The only reason was because God was with him. Wherever they go, God would be there and the place would be better for it. In a lot of ways, Israel was always supposed to be a lot like Dorothy, tripping, tripping all over themselves and fumbling around and accidentally making the world better because God was with them. Dorothy lands in Oz and falls directly onto the Wicked Witch of the East and all the Munchkins rejoice. Joseph lands in a pit but happens to be sold into slavery at just the right time for Egypt to be saved from a famine. Dorothy throws some water on her friend, which just happens to splash onto the witch and it melts. Daniel's friends are thrown into a fiery furnace, but God happens to make them survive so that even the king of Babylon worships God. Dorothy's dog trips on the curtain to reveal the Wizard of Oz for who he is. And the Israelites were sent into exile by, ba to, by Babylon so that the knowledge of God might spread through the whole world. When Israel was at their best, they were just like Dorothy, tripping and fumbling through life, only to happen to make the world a better place because God was with them. And now the New Testament says that that very covenant which God had with Abraham also extended to all Christians, Gentiles included. That means that we are tasked with doing the same kinds of things, tripping and fumbling through life only to see that people are converted, lives are saved, and the world is blessed. And all of that explicitly because God is with us. Where we go, God goes with us. And where God is, the world is blessed. A faithful Christian is the most dangerous thing to the enemy. <coughs> I'm sorry. Uh, not because of their own cunning or skill, 
but simply because God is with them. It's not through your stills or wisdom that God is completing his plans, but simply your presence and the fact that God is with you. I mean, think about it. Do you think that it was because of the cunning and intelligence of the first Christians that the Roman Empire was converted? No, it was because when a plague came on a city, the rich fled the city and left everyone else for dead, while the Christians came into the city and cared for them. Christians showed their love for others and acted different, and it was attractive. There wasn't any ulterior motive or tactical stratagem that did it. Christians just were faithful to God despite their fears, like David was. And the next day, when you look at that, Rome was Christian. The gospel spread through the whole world simply through fumbling and bumbling Christians because God was with them. What's the best example of this? In his crucifixion, Jesus experienced the full power of all the evil and demonic powers of the world. And these powers were just like Goliath. And they thought that might makes right, and they showed it by nailing him to the cross. But just like Goliath, these evil forces proved to be paper tigers compared with the power of God in Christ. They had no idea that they were actually pawns for God's will. And through their actions, Christ was accomplishing the salvation of the whole world. In his resurrection, Jesus completely defeated them so that we can also be free of those evil Goliath powers. Their greatest expression of their own power was their own demise. Now, Jesus could have defeated them by sending down armies of angels to violently kill his enemies, but that would only strengthen them because it would tell the world that the evil powers are right and the only thing that matters is who's strongest. No, all that really matters is the presence of God. And we have it because the Holy Spirit dwells in our very hearts. And because of that, we certainly don't need to be strong or skillful. We just need to fumble and bumble our way around, poking the paper tigers and watching them fall because they've already been defeated. So what this means is that our success as people and our success as a church does not primarily depend on our own talents, intellect, or abilities. To some extent, it doesn't even depend on our personal efforts. We should use all of those things because God gave them to us. But we should remember that those things are not what's going to make us prevail. Instead, by constant prayer and practice, we should do whatever we can to ensure that God is with us. Because that is the source of all our abilities to bless the world. We might lack every talent and every ability, but if God is with us, we will bless the world through him. The Lord does not save through sword or spears or talents or intellect so that all the earth may know that there is a God in this church. And maybe the best way that we can practice all that is by coming to Love Feast. And we can do that in two ways. First, Love Feast is a special time where we hope to encounter God in his presence above all things. We are reenacting Jesus' last night on earth, and we can imagine that Jesus is really sitting there with us. When we pronounce the forgiveness of sins, we can really imagine that it is Jesus who's sitting there forgiving our sins. When we wash each other's feet, we can really imagine that it's Jesus that's washing our feet. When we sit and eat at the table, we can really imagine that it's Jesus who's sitting and eating with us. And when we say, this is my body broken for you, we can really imagine that the bread we eat is Jesus' broken body that was given for us. And I hope that our love feast prepares us to look out for God's presence everywhere we are, because it's our only hope as a church. We can aimlessly stumble and bumble around, but if God is with us, lives will be blessed, people will be converted, and the world will be better 
because, through Jane's Old Church of the Brethren and her individual members. So the second way that we can practice the power of the presence of God is specifically by washing each other's feet. The world has its own ways of doing power, and it looks a lot like Goliath. And if anyone had the right to show Goliath-like power, it was the rightful king of the universe and God of the world, Jesus Christ. But it is not by might that he prevailed. Instead, he emptied himself and made himself a servant. And he bent down and did the filthy and disgusting thing that was meant for the lowest of slaves, and he washed his disciples' feet. It's a weird thing to wash somebody's feet, even today. And all that shows is that there's a different kind of kingdom here than all the ones that belong to people like Goliath. We have a kingdom where we care for each other, love one another, and love the God that binds us together. And we give up our privileges and our might when necessary so we can love each other better. This is not a kingdom where might and passion make right. This is one where the love and presence of God and the person of the servant of Jesus Christ washing our feet guarantees that we will be successful in blessing and loving the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, fill us with the conviction that your presence in every good and perfect thing is the only thing worth seeking. Give us the wisdom to see the power of your kingdom rather than the power of Goliath. In your name we pray. Amen.